welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast with We Are Open Circle and myself, Adam Rumack, here with Miriam Jones. We're the co-founders of We Are Open Circle, and we are really excited today to be talking with and listening to Julie Diamond. Julie Diamond is the author of Power, A User's Guide, uh, is an expert in the field of power and power dynamics and cultural aspects of power in organizations and for leaders, and has taught and worked with people and trained people uh, in many different continents, I'm sure, and we'll hear a little bit more about that. Uh, we're speaking to Julie at her home in Yahats, Oregon. Yahats, um, Oregon. So thank you so much for being with us today, Julie. And we look forward to what happens here. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Did I get your bio correct enough? You got it correct enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. okay good. Absolutely. <laughs> good. So on this, uh, on this rainy day on the Oregon coast, I'm um, just down the coast from you. Um, we wanted to start out this conversation by asking you the question of when you realized or when you, you, you first recognized the spark in your life ar around power, around working with power, understanding power, helping other people um, cope with their own power, anything around that? Uh, yeah, thanks for that question. I, you know, I think it was there right at the get-go. I remember so many early stories and events about power, about inequity, inequality. Um, I feel like my parents primed me really well to be thinking about power. My father was a journalist and social activist, and my mother had a really keen eye about human dynamics. And um, so I was just aware early on about how people treated each other and why things were unfair, why people, you know, I remember saying to my parents, why do some people live in better houses? <laughs> why do some people live in bad houses? That was just a really early on awareness. And, um, you know, the answer that I got, this was in the 1960s, and the answer that I got had to do with um, slavery and racism and redlining and inequality. And I was probably all of three years old or four years old. I had no idea what it meant, but I realized, oh, there's a big story there. So, yeah, I remember coming home from school after fights on the playground or upset with somebody being unfair to me. And I remember really clearly my mother's message to me was always something like, consider the other person. What do you think, what do you think's going on for them? Or maybe they're, you know, if I said somebody's picking on me and I felt like the victim, she would come back and say things like, well, how do you know they weren't jealous of you, for example? And flipping it, flipping it on me. All I wanted was a little, you know, I'm the victim, play along with my story. And she would flip it on me to make me consider that maybe I had a rank, I would say now. She didn't use that word. And maybe I had something, maybe I had more power in their eyes and it wasn't just being me being picked on. But maybe they felt 
less powerful or whatever it was. And it just got me thinking. So these early stories, I feel like from the get-go, I was looking at the world with the help of my parents um, or maybe it was also inborn. I was just aware of these dynamics from a very early age. How, how was that as a kid to, to be working with flipping perspective? Um, I know that it, even adults struggle with that. <laughs> we all struggle with that. Um, and I can imagine that that was, a, that was tricky as a kid. How was that for you? Well, you know, it could be done really poorly, right? It could be done with a, with a message of like, stop bellyaching, you know, I don't want to hear it. You know, I don't want a victim as a child. You know, it could have been done. There's so many ways to communicate that message that could have been hurtful or less helpful. But um, it was done with a lot of love. And it was, it, was, it was almost done, it's a weird thing to say, but respectfully, like treating me like a thinking partner. So, you know, there was a part of me that was like, I just want you to take my side, God damn it. You know, just, 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 they were bad and I'm a victim and, you know, just that. But, but it was done in a way that helped me, you know, think. And so I don't, I don't, it was okay. It didn't feel like I was being deprived too much of my sort of righteous upsetness. Um, and it was done with enough respect that I felt sort of treated with a little bit of dignity. Uh, I underlined the word righteous upsetness. Um, maybe we can come back to that later. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that going around. There's a lot of that going around. Yeah. Um, so what, what happened from there? You're, you're a young, you're a kid um, having these struggle playground uh era struggles, your parents are helping you see, get a broader perspective, think about other people, think about your own, your own rank and power, even though they maybe weren't using that language. Um, how did that evolve for you in your life? Where did you go from there? Well, I was a fairly political kid. And so I also grew up in a really political household the average conversation at dinner was about politics. This is the Vietnam War and it's the civil rights movement and there's a lot going on. And so I was very political. For me, it was a very externalized thing. It was, it was, I started to really see it in terms of politics and society. And so I was very outspoken. I was voted in my high school class radical, um, so it sort of manifest that way for a long period of time, but there were little clues along the way that it wasn't sufficient, that there was some other internal dynamic going on. And I don't know whether I tell the story in my book or not. I don't think I do. When I was in high school, I was, um, there, was a, there was a wonderful teacher in my high school who had an incredible impact on my life. Her name was Mary Curtis found out later she won multiple Teacher of the Year awards. She was a fantastic person. And she taught a class called The Literature of Peace and Protest. And she had us read, you know, Johnny Got His Gun and Kurt Vonnegut and all these great pieces of literature about sort of anti, anti-war literature. And one day there was an army recruiter on campus of the high school 
And she invited this poor recruiter. Now, when I think about it, he must have been like 21 years old. She invited this recruiter into the class to speak to the class about the Vietnam War and his experiences. And she invited all the other English periods at that time or the English classes during that period. And there was, I remember there were other teachers and I remember even there was the vice principal and somebody asked this young man at the front, you know, something, one of those questions, like, how can you kill somebody? It's a terrible question, but you know, it's always, you ask somebody like, how is it that you can kill another human being? And this young man who was probably extremely unprepared to talk to 60 kids in a classroom said something about, well, the enemy doesn't have the values and they don't believe in the same God, said something really, in a way, very classic and very inflammatory and was probably just mouthing what he had been told. And I just remember shooting up from my seat, standing up and just yelling, how can you say that? You know, you, you know, people, you know, just, I don't know what I said, but whatever I said was I was anger. I was righteous. And I, and then I suddenly caught myself, like I'm screaming in this class and there's my teachers and the principals. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm probably going to get in trouble. And I ran out of the class. And as I ran out of the class, I got, I was very close to him. I could see him. And as I looked at him, I realized that he didn't shave, that he was probably like about, like I suddenly looked at his face and I saw that he had like a baby face. And, and, uh, Hmm. and it, and I suddenly thought, oh my God, he's like a kid. He's like me. And then I saw that he was flushed, that his cheeks were red, all of this in like an instant. And I ran out of the class and I thought to myself, oh, I probably just really hurt him too. Like he's probably now freaked out. He's standing in front of a class. Someone just yelled at him and he has to handle that. And all my, I, there was another flip. And my feelings went right to him and what I just had done and that I had done. So I yelled at him for what he had done and then I did this thing. And, and at that moment I thought, ooh, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. You know what I mean? It's like, hmm. talk about power. Like who had yeah. the power in that classroom, in that moment, in my school, being you know a, like a good student, kind of a favorite of my teacher, having done that the sense of freedom I felt to yell and scream at who I thought was an oppressor and then suddenly realizing, oh, wow. So, you know, now I just did that and I just used my power. So that was, um, that was a very defining moment for me. I started to, and it set me off on a real journey of thinking about power, not from the outside in, but from the inside out and all the, the inner and outer dimensions of how people use their power. And this was in, uh, where was this taking place? Was this in This was taking place in, in uh, this was taking place in Trumbull, Connecticut, at Trumbull High School. In Connecticut. In Connecticut. And uh, feel free to not answer this question uh, if, if you don't want to, but what, what year was that? Just to help us set the context. Thank you. I, I, I'm trying to think myself um, because I graduated in 1977, but I believe the war, we withdrew from our troops in 75 or four. So it must've been, there must've been still active. We must've still been in the Vietnam war. So I must've been like a sophomore 
at that time or a junior. So it would have been the mid 70s. So Vietnam War, civil rights, another time in this country where there was a lot of upheaval and a lot of um, power plays. And um, I, w- I wasn't around at that time, but I imagine, imagine and know from history a lot of great division um, mm-hmm. and maybe some of that righteous upsetness that you, you mentioned earlier, including your own. So you talked about the, you said that was a, a critical moment for you or a pivotal moment um, in starting to see that there was a lot more at play in the internal mm-hmm. and ex, and I think you said external dynamics of power. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you start to sort that out um, at that stage? Well, so that story, that kind of reverberated, that continued because I went to um, a very sort of progressive, radical college. I went to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. So I studied political science, of course, and political, you know, I was a political science major. And, uh, but I quickly became very disaffected with that because it was a very, it was a, a very, a time of great, great, you know, activism and, 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 but I was very disenchanted by the, by the group's the activist groups that I belong to on campus and the power, the power plays and the politics and the way we interacted with each other and the way we were permitting ourselves to interact with the powers that be. And I felt, again, I felt that there was a kind of permission to use power any way you want, as long as it was in the right cause or for the right reason, it was the ends justified the means kind of Mm -hmm. thing. But I, of course, I didn't have a language for it, but I never felt comfortable with the that activism because I felt like the behaviors that were permitted both internally among us as a group of activists as well as how we protested and how we expressed our disaffection were, was hard for me to get behind. I didn't feel it was a, it was a great use of power. And then I had some... Dear friends, I had like I bumped into as it happens, you know, became very close friends with people who were really into psychology and my my uh, professor of education. I switched over majors and became an education major, and I got introduced to psychology and Jungian psychology and sort of the more internal introspective journey, and and I kind of made a radical shift into psychology and personal growth. And um, that led me to Zurich, Switzerland, eventually to study psychology, uh, Jungian psychology. And I think I kind of just left it be the politics for a while. And uh, I couldn't reconcile. I just couldn't reconcile the two things. So I wasn't, I didn't cease being political, but I ceased being really an active activist or, or, or really pursuing that um, in any professional way. And I just went deeply into uh, psychology and I just went there for, to learn about the inner, inner dimensions, you know, how people, why people behave the way they do, how they act, why they act the way they do. Um, and that took up a lot of my focus for, for many years. So is power for you, is power political or is power psychological? 
or is it both? It's and all how do you it. treat those differently? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of different kinds of power and power is definitely political power, is systemic power is uh, social power is positional. It's all those things. My study is on how people use power. So sort of, I call it like a more of a micro level or a behavioral level of power. How do people use power? How do people, how do leaders use their power to be effective? Um, how does anybody use their power to be effective? So the study of social power or positional power or, or structural systemic power is really important. And that is itself its own field of study. It's not, it's, it's not my area of expertise. So I put it together. I put the psychology and the politics together by studying how do people use power with each other to affect change, to lead teams, to um, innovate, to change cultures, to, to do whatever. How do people use power, whether it's raising kids or teaching students or leading teams? How do you use power and how do you how do you not use power? How should you not use power? And what happens? Why do people use power in ways that's ineffective? Or how do people go wrong? So that's where I put my, that's where I put my attention. So I do think political power and psychological power are different things, but I, I kind of, for me, I frame it like I study power as a behavior, what people, how people use power to do certain things. There's a quote that we use of yours that's, um, Something like power is not good or bad. Power in itself is 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 neutral. I wonder if that's an accurate understanding of how you use that, how you're looking at power. Um, and then, if so, if if power is neutral, how do you how do you work with ethics and you know your own um, moral compass in that as a you know as a sort of behavioral study? Morality. It's a big term. So ethics. <laughs> let me start with let me start with ethics. Okay. So ethics is a ethics are the sort of let's say the guardrails of a of a of a profession because ethics really belong to a, a particular they're 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 prescribed for certain uh, professions. So they're kind of the guardrails of what is permitted and what is not permitted. Um, morals are interesting. Morals, you know, there's different morals, people, there, there's a set number of morals, let's say, but how people, what's more important to people differs from group to group. So um, that's, that, that, that's good. There's going to be a lot of diversity in people's sort of moral understanding of, you know, what's moral, what's immoral. Um, John Haidt's book on, you know, the, um, on morality, I, I think about tattoos. Uh, in some cultures, tattoos are extremely immoral. You can't disfigure your body. That's, uh, you know, um, in other cultures, it's, it's, it's permitted. In some cultures, you, you know, you protect um, it, it, the, the morality uh, is focused a lot on how you uh, protect and defend your family. In other cultures, morality is more broad how you treat strangers let's say is 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 your, your moral morality is expressed in how you treat strangers so so there's a lot of diversity around around morality 
what I think about when I think about power and, and whether or not, I don't think in terms of whether it's moral or not. I think in terms of whether it's effective. And when I say effective, what I mean is, does it achieve the outcomes you want without a cost that harms, that, that is harmful to people or to, 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 um, there's no collateral damage. So for example, you can say, oh, that was really effective. I got my way, but I harmed stakeholders or constituents or I, you know, whatever, abused many people along the way. That wouldn't be effective. So it's that, are you using power in a way that really impacts others in a way that also supports the common good, supports the greater good? And it's complicated. It's not straightforward either. It's not straightforward to save an or like sometimes using power well to save your organization means laying people off, or it means, um, you know, closing down a project that's not producing the results, and that feels harsh to some people. But you're looking at the greater good. It's like saving the patient by amputating a limb, or, you know, um, it's like you know, some decisions have to be made for the greater good. So that's, so, so sometimes an effective use of power is not going to be good for everyone. This is fascinating. And, um, you know, I'm tracking it back to, you know, a, an earlier thread where you said, you know, that, that uh, of being an activist and, and, you know, kind of working out early on the ends just doesn't justify the means or your discomfort with that. And I'm hearing in there what what is required is, you know, in terms of the moral compass, is a certain level of discernment in terms of how to use that compass. What is, if you could like center, what's the center of that compass, like that discernment? Where does that discernment come from to recognize kind of what you're talking about, impact? I, I think the center, if I'm getting it right, Miriam, I think the center of that compass is 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 motive. What's your motive? Uh, yes. Right. And, and I think that I think that to use power well, understanding your motive is, is central to it. And are you are you motivated by self-interest or personal gain? Are you motivated to avoid discomfort? Like, for example, I always say this, an underuse of power is just as big a misuse of power as overuse. So avoiding a difficult conversation, not bringing up a controversial topic stepping too lightly into your authority and letting chaos reign or letting meetings get derailed or letting, you know, an overabundance of democracy can be very chaotic. But under using power, like is your motive to avoid discomfort? Is your motive to not be like your mother or your father and not be like your first boss so you're going to be different? Like those motives are suspect because they're not putting the greater good first. They're putting your comfort first. It's brilliant because now I understand. I was holding this kind of central question and following that, your relationship from very early on about what's the relationship between the political, the external part of you and this deep psychological journey you went on and you just answered the question. <laughs> it's like oh, now yeah. I can use the psychology to understand my motive, which helps me use the power in a discerning way. So thank you. You answered two questions at once that I was holding. Thank you for framing what I said to make sense, <laughs> to make it make better sense. <laughs> I, I just I just have one thing to add because um, 
Adam did a post on LinkedIn today and it was taught, it was a value of stopping, <laughs> you know, and, and this kind of value of stopping, I think is in act, we just experienced it. You know, the value of having a stopping point, like I'm not involved in this conversation, I've stopped, allows you to kind of access that motive, you know, access that information that can then allow that discernment to happen. And, you know, just noticing how much, how many things there are to stop us from that, which means, you know, at least in my experience of, of I, 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 like you, Julie, was an activist and I was like, oh, corporations, you know, they're bad. <laughs> you know, when I went in there, I could just see that there wasn't enough time for people to be conscious of their motives. And therefore, there was a lot of unintentioned misdirection. That's an interesting thing about time and stopping. I think I think one of the things that leads, what, what I've noticed, in, in, in especially in the business context, is one of the things that lead to the greatest, you know, poor use of power is um, expedience, like trying to just get things done quickly, like, like tr- you know, that lack of stopping, that speed, that having to get things done quickly. And then you skip over some really important steps. You skip over some self-reflection moments to pause and stop and think, okay, what could be harmed in this process or what am I missing or who should be informed? Who am I leaving out? Like little innocuous things that can really have a big impact. You know, here's a really common example. Like you meet someone in the hall, you're really busy, you had a meeting, you made some decisions, you bump into someone in in the hallway who was in the meeting and you're talking and suddenly you both think like, oh, it'd be better if we did it this way, even though you just came out of the meeting where you decided to do it that way. And so you make this little tweak and you think you're just, it's just quick. You don't inform people. The decision's not transparent. There's there's an accusation and an impression of... um, behind the scenes politicking and why did I get left out of that? And then there could be like accusations of bias or discrimination because I wasn't involved and you left us out and it could just snowball. And so that's all just this like, oh, it's quick, it's expedient, let's just do it. You know, let's just innovate, let's be Hmm. agile. And, but the repercussions of that. um, So it's tending to relationships, but you know, I really feel like again and again and again, I come back to transparency. I feel that like one of the biggest problems with power I see is a lack of transparency. What does transparency look like in an ideal world? And uh, what does transparency look like when it's broken, either because it's maybe too transparent or not transparent enough? How do we know that something, an organization or a leader is being transparent? When you don't know, like one of the most common things, especially in organizations that perhaps are trying to be a little bit more, let's say flat or less hierarchical, more kind of self-managing. Like if you don't know how decisions get made, how do I get put on a certain project team? How do people get assigned? Or how do I, how did I get that shift? Or, you know, when you don't know how things happen, that's, that's, there's no transparency there. And um, mm-hmm. if, if, if a decision is just discussed in a, at the water cooler, which is this piece of equipment with water in it that people used to gather around when they were face to face, if decisions just get made like there or something like that or on in a, whatever, 
you're not, it's not transparent because people don't have access to that information. And so that's what I mean by transparency. There's no access to it. So they can't even weigh in on it. They can't disagree with it because it's not visible to them. So they don't know who made that decision, who made the decision is not visible, where the decision was made is not visible, why the rationale wasn't visible to me. And therefore there's no appeal. There's no dispute about it. And so it's like, it doesn't exist. It's invisible. And invisible uses of power, invisible power decisions are really the most, in a way, damaging and harmful in an organization because it really undermines trust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't trust that you'll be dealt with fairly in an organization where you don't see where decisions are made or how they're made. Mm -hmm. I've seen that um, in in my experience, and this was in a, uh, kind of wannabe flat organization. I don't know if it was, you know, because you talk about um, formal and informal power. Um, and, you know, I've talked about how flat organizations tend to operate on more on informal power. So there's informal power that's at play. There's That makes things less transparent, right? Because formal power is sort of a transparent version of power. It says, here's, the, here's how decision, ideally it's a, hierarchy of decision-making and responsibility, um, which can be good, which can be functioning or not functioning. Um, but in a flatter organization, a lot of times that transparency is, be, uh, the lack of transparency becomes a communication issue for mm-hmm. one. Um, like the burden of communication is so high because there's so many informal decisions being made all the time and maybe no one's um, formally tasked with communicate or overseeing all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to the ultimate um, kind of Pandora's box of transparency, which is um, salaries. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes I think salaries are probably the big one. Um, but, you know, other things around personal transparency um, for staff and, you know, HR issues around that. So I wonder um, what you think about that in terms of transparency with with organizations and how those things, um, how power and money and organizations and salaries um, kind of mix together in, the, in considering transparency. Well, it's, a com- it's complicated. I, I, I think that like transparency could also include a transparent decision not to disclose information. I, I, transparency doesn't mean that you reveal everything. Transparent means that you are open with what your decisions are. So I could be transparent and say, I'm not going to tell you what year I graduated high school because I prefer (laughs) not to release my age. (laughs) And that's being transparent about the fact that I don't want to tell you that I graduated high school in 1977. Um, So I could be the CEO and say, we're not going to discuss salaries here. Um, I've made that decision. And the reason for it is this, and here is how salary decisions are made. So the, the, the decision-making practice is, is transparent. Like this is how we make decisions about, about salary. Um, I'm transparent in that I don't want everyone to disclose their salary and I won't disclose salaries. And that's transparent. 
to a degree. I mean, that, that's a transparency. Are salaries transparent? No. But I've made a decision and I have a reason for it. And I can discuss my reason with you and you can debate the reason with me. You could appeal that decision. You know where that decision is located. Um, and you know why it was made and you know who made it. So um, I think that's also belongs to transparency. I'm tracking um, the same thread of its relationship to motive. Um, it's like the transparency relates to motive, you know, right. transparency internally about motive and transparency externally about motive. Right. right, right. That's a really good, yeah, thank you for that. That's right. That I have a motive. My motive for not doing it is this, and I'm aware of my motive, and then you're aware of it as well. And, and, you, and you can choose to, to be in a company where the motivation about salary is this or not. And, and so the folly, the, folly is thinking, the folly is that uh, is thinking that transparency is about transparency about the decisions rather than transparency and clarity around the process. Process of getting to those decisions. Folly. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. And in a sense, a hierarchy would, is better at that, right? Like a hierarchy. Much better at that. Much better at that. Hierarchies, look, I, people, I, this is why I say it's, for me, the more I study this, people tend to point their fingers at hierarchy when they really should be pointing their fingers at whether it's a, it's a transparency or a lack of transparency, like where, where abuse lies. Like hierarchies a more rigid power structure, but it tends to have better transparency of processes. Not always. I mean, obviously there can be like very abusive leaderships, you know, inside of a hierarchy, but anywhere, but it could be anywhere as well. I wonder how you, um, how you think, how you like, what is abusive power for you? Or I know that, and I know that's probably a huge subject. Um, but it's where people tend to go when they think about power is abuse of power rather than the rightful use of power anyways these days. Um, so use and abuse of power. I, you know, I think that we all develop our expertise through the negative use case, you know, mm-hmm. how we were parented, how we, our school experiences are experiences with institutions, schools, communities, wherever, workplaces, where we saw it not being used well, where we suffered. So the the negative use case is definitely, in a way, more more transformational and and more um, developmental than just, just the positive use case, learning it. Obviously, obviously positive examples, positive role models are fantastic. Like my mother, like I gave that example of my, my parents and that's fantastic, but, but there's nothing like a, there's nothing like a negative use case to really teach you. Uh, if, if you, if you can get past the hurt and the trauma of it, if you can work your way through that process, that learning is, is fabulous. So just to say what you said, I, I, I think sure the same is true for me. Um, I spent a lot of years in psychological uh, institutions and communities. So one of my, when you say what's an abuse of power, one of the things that I, I really, really see as damaging and, and, and that I really saw as uh, early on as an abuse of power is lack of role clarity. 
So what we call in, in psychology, hmm. dual, dual role violations, where in one role, you got your needs met in for one part of you through another role you had. So for example, if a teacher is, you know, you're my, you're my, I'm, I'm your advisor in a graduate school, let's say, and, and I have research and I'm, you're working on your doctorate and part of your, that is the research you're doing for me, but I kind of use your research and hold you back from your own publishing by publishing it first or something like that. I'm getting my needs met, but I'm violating mm -hmm. my role responsibilities to you. My primary role with you is as your advisor. Um, and, but I'm, but I'm manipulating that to, to, to further my own career. So to me, the, the lack of role clarity is one of the biggest problem areas um, of, of, of where, where I see power being violated. And that, and that's subtle, you know, that could be very subtle. Like it could be, um, in a parental relationship, you know, where, you know, we, we have all of our roles with each other have different components. So, um, if I'm a parent and I'm using my child as a confidant and talking about, if I'm talking about my spouse to my child because I'm frustrated and I can't have that direct relationship with my spouse or that direct conversation and I talk smack about that partner to my kid, that's a dual role violation. That's a role, lack of role clarity. That I think that's the one that really sparked my initial interest in the topic. And how does that show up in in businesses where particularly I think, you know, profit oriented businesses, they tend to at least from one view, be extractive, right? We're taking, you know, we're taking people's energy and their talent uh, and their ambition and their insights and even sometimes their networks and transforming that into the, for the good of the organization. Right. I guess what's the responsibility, what's the power responsibility of a leader in a business in that role and how can that be abused when we're, um, relating to our staff or, or, so, you know, yeah. So this thing about your, we're extracting your talent and your work and your effort and your knowledge from you for the good of the business, but it's a transaction in exchange for that. We give you a salary and we give you benefits and we give you a recognition and acknowledgement and career advancement in the best case, in the best case scenario, right? We're talking a hypothetical case here and that's a clear transaction and that's not muddy. That's clear, right? Um, now, uh, a lack of, here's a, here's an example of a lack of role clarity. I don't want to give you feedback because I'm afraid of hurting your feelings and I want you, and I'm your yeah. boss, I'm your boss and you really are not doing well. And I'm too much of a, I'm too afraid of hurting your feelings. So, so here it's a lack of role clarity because I'm treating this like using like friendship role. Like, I don't want to hurt your feelings mm -hmm. and I don't want to be uncomfortable and I want us to have a good relationship. So I don't want everyone to tell you the truth, but that's like a friendship language that, that I'm putting a friendship frame around us. And that's, that's the wrong 
role relationship to have. I'm your boss and I have to give you feedback. That's what the role requires me to do. It's a dereliction of duty if I don't give you feedback. I'm not executing the role mm-hmm. responsibly. I'm not using my power responsibly. So that I don't want to hurt your feelings or I don't want to be uncomfortable or I don't want to get into a conflict with you. That's that. That's a clash of that. that that's a role uh, violation. Because I'm, I'm I'm using like a, a friendship frame Got it. to to prioritize the kind of relationship we should be having, which is peaceful and harmonious, and I want you to like me. So it's almost like our job is to maintain is like there's a mutual agreement about that, and to maintain and my job is to maintain that. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. Because giving you feedback is kind. It's good for it's 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 in your interest. It's not in my. I mean, it's in my interest because I get better extraction. But it's in your interest to know the quality of your work and where you can improve. That's something I offer you. That that's a benefit to you because you'll need that in your career and you'll need that to succeed. And depriving you of that information is not being kind. I. I, w- I wanted to bring in an extra level of well, what I perceive as complexity um, to this question. Um, some of my work in organisations and with the education system has been in bullying. And one of the primary things I noticed um, about bullies is that they were really not conscious, as you're saying, about power. And as you're talking about this, I was wondered about where that unconsciousness came from. And I'm wondering about this question of multiple roles. So I'm just wondering what your comments are and how kind of kind of and how abuse kind of slips in or unconscious abuse slips in. The bullying, you know, for me, a really clear, a really clear, and this is goes to motive, and this is in my book, and this is like one of the clearest things that I've discovered in my research is that a lot of abusive use of power, bullying use of power comes from an internal experience of powerlessness. And this is across the board, something that I see again and again. And bullying is a really classic point because what do we know of the psychology of bullies? They have low self-regard, low self-esteem, low, poor self-regulation. Often they've been bullied themselves. Um, so, you know, there's been study after study that shows that low internal self-esteem or self-regard or, or, or poor self-image tends to, when someone has some power, they tend to use that power in a self-aggrandizing or self-protective way, in a way that's harmful. So, so um, you know, you see the classic jerk boss, you know, the office, like the, the classic example of the boss who's a jerk. And typically they're like, they are a jerk. Typically they're like a really poor specimen of human development, you know what I mean? And, and they have this little bit of power and they lord it over everybody and they use that power to like boost their ego. That, that, that's it's the classic stereotype and there's truth to it. So when it comes to bullying and harassment, a lot of harassment is not so much about sex as it is about dominance, right? It's about establishing dominance and control over somebody else and to show that, you know, I have more power and that classically comes from someone who has a poor self-image, who's insecure. That's really interesting. People are constantly developing and therefore, you know, how does that affect role clarity? And I use the example of 
the conf- confidant. Like it's inappropriate at one stage to be a confidant, but for my 25-year-old, we have much more, more of a confidant relationship. Um, and similarly, when that happens in an organization, the, the role shifts. So I'm wondering about. Well, I think that's also maturity. I think that someone who has a mature, who's mature in their use of power will allow their role relative to somebody else to change and to grow. So what they used to be a mentor and now they're colleagues or they used to be a boss and now that person is a peer. And I think that um, that's a demonstration of, of, of real maturity that you're allowed, that you're, you allow someone to grow um, and, and not hold them in a role, not hold them down in a role where you have more rank or more power, but you, whether it's a student or an employee or a child. Um, and, and I think that's one of the key, I mean, that should be like a litmus test about whether someone, you know, whether they're using power well or not, can they do that? Can they afford that? Can they transition into a collaborative or collegial role with somebody where they used to be a teacher or, or they used to be the boss? Hmm. Um, in, in certain cultures, that's marked by ritual, right? You're now a woman or a man, or you're now a this, or you're now a that. And, you know, you're, you're, there's like different stages and, and, and it, needs a, it needs to be um, a demarcation. It needs a ritual and an acknowledgement. I see some really good use. I mean, I have to just say in my work in organizations, I see also, I see great use of power and I see that level of acknowledgement at times. I see, I mean, I see bad things, I see good things, but I see a lot of really good things. And I've seen some, some wonderful, wonderful managers and wonderful leaders and, you know, do things where I've learned a lot from them, how they do it, how they give feedback, how they acknowledge somebody, how they give credit, how they lift people up. Um, so, yeah. So pow- so power, your work is about power. You know, your story, the story that you've told us about your life is one of, a, of having a unique perspective on, on power and an insight and a curiosity about power. How would you, if, if you were going to define power to someone who either thinks that power is bad and we need to get rid of it uh, or has no idea what you're talking about when you talk about power in organizations or human systems, how would you define it to them? How would you explain it to them? You know, it's super complicated. There's a million definitions. Uh, so I really, this question on how to define power just always makes me a little bit antsy because <laughs> everyone's going to have, there, there's so many definitions of power. And as I say in, in some of my writings, you know, power is to the social sciences what energy is to the physical sciences, right? It's like everything, right? So there's just, let's just say that there's a lot. I like a very simple definition and I like to call it, you know, power is your ability to impact and influence the world around you with the resources you have at your disposal, right? And so those resources are all the different kinds of power, your expertise, your intelligence, your network, your friendships, your charisma, your personal power, your position, whatever that might be. It's very similar to Dr. Keltner's definition of power. Um, he wrote a great book, Power Paradox. He's a professor of psychology at University of California at Berkeley. Let me ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. So why is it important that people think about power, that people understand power, um, that people work with their own, their own power or the power of the systems that they participate in? So power... Power relations and power dynamics are underlie every endeavor. They're, 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 whenever people get together to do anything, power is at play. Power is a part of everything. And 
power has the ability to, to disturb and disrupt everything um, if, if it's not managed well. And the reason to work on it is simply to be able to be more effective to get where you want to go and not get hung up on the different power dynamics and to be really clear about how are we going to harness the power. So everyone... And it's natural. We fight for status. We fight for control. And that's natural. That's just whenever humans gather, there's going to be like jockeying for position, whether it's who talks, you know, or whether, and that's why they invented rules to like, (laughs) to like contain and constrain all these, you know, whatever I want to, I want to lead, I want us to go in this direction. I think we should go in this direction. Being able to work with that effectively is the difference between like a super creative, super innovative, like an amazing group, an amazing individual who can like create awesome change and build amazing things or just sort of spiral into just like awful, terrible fights and conflicts and power dynamics where nobody, everybody's pulling in different directions. Nobody can listen. Nobody can work together. Nobody can get anything done. What does what does rank mean, and where does that where does your understanding of that come from? How does it play out? Yeah. There's two kinds of people in the world. I say, <laughs> there's perfectionists. You can either be you, you have two choices, not two types of people. You have two choices. You can be like a perfectionist, or you could be prolific. And um, this is my this is my way of saying that I can be very inexact. I'm not a very perfectionist person. I sometimes am very inexact with my terms and I can contradict myself. And it's very easy to go back through all my writings and all my things and to say, well, you said this here and you said that there. And I, and my defense, in my defense, I say <laughs> I'm prolific. I'm not a perfectionist. So uh, that's, a pro, that, that's a preface to say that definitions aren't my, <laughs> aren't my strong suit. But um, rank for me, Rank is different from power in that rank expresses the dynamic nature of of status. Rank rank expresses the fact that I may have power in one way, but I don't have it in another. That I may have power today, but not tomorrow. That in this social setting, my information or my intelligence gives me power, but in this setting, it doesn't. I have more rank in this podcast because I'm the guest expert, but I have less rank when I'm talking to a client that I'm trying to kind of sell something to and then and they have the control of whether or not they're going to sort of buy into what I'm pitching or not. So rank expresses sort of the momentary variance of status and power dynamics at play depending on the situation. So how do what, what's the how do rank and role go together? So I you know role I, I think of role as, um, as uh, I use the word guardrails. For me, a role is like a guardrail of my behavior. It's like a, uh, Miriam was talking about a compass or the true north. And sometimes I think that the, the role is going to guide my choices. Um, what's my primary role? Um, of all the behavioral choices I have at any given moment, of all the ways I could use my power, of all the different behaviors and actions I could take, it they should be constrained by the role that I'm in in any moment. And the role that I'm in is either it's a position, maybe I'm the manager, and in this relationship right now, my role determines that I have to give feedback. 
And that's a guardrail. I can't say, oh, I don't want to. That person gets defensive. It's going to be a bad conversation. I just want to avoid it. Let me just avoid it. I can't do that. The, the, the role is guiding my behavioral choices at any given moment. So, you know, that's, uh, th that's how I use role. And, and there's not just one role or even within one role, there's many different choices. When you're a parent, at one moment, disciplinarian is, is the role. In another moment, um, nurturer is the role, right? And so, or, or mentor, right? And so, but the situation determines what's, what's, what's really appropriate in this, in this given moment and it, and it should guide your choices. And so I sort of use it as a way to, to talk about, um, you know, what's expected, what should be done, what are your choices in this moment? What's appropriate? It's almost like, what's the best choice? What role are you in? What does the role determine you should do? And how do role and rank go together or not? Well, roles, some roles have rank, like, you know, um, what's the rank of a given, like, like I'm in the role of teacher or I'm in the role of manager, I'm in the role of parent, and it has a certain rank. And I have to kind of, I have to use the rank of that role in that moment. That would be the appropriate thing mm -hmm. to do. So that's just how I use it. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's, it helps me, it helps me work with people. It helps me coach people. I think to myself, what role are you in? And what's the rank of that role in that given moment? What's required of that role? What's the ethical, what's the correct thing to do given that, that role? So I was coaching. So I was coaching a leader who was a very, very collaborative leader, and she was uh, she led a team. It was a it was an apparel industry, and um, and their complaint was just burnout and overwork. And when I kind of dug into a little bit, it was like all to do with like just like massive amounts of email and you know tracking down decisions. And when I dug it into it even more, it all came from meetings where no decisions were like really confirmed or made. And when I dug into that even more, it was because the leader was like, had this collaborative, creative way of kind of leading and sort of was too hesitant to use the rank of her role to say, okay, enough decisions, what's our, what, enough discussion, what's our decision? And by not doing that, meetings ended and there was this like sort of fog, you know, vague, did we, what was the, I don't remember what we decided here. And so then people would spend like hours and hours and hours and hours tracking down the decisions and then rehashing them and discussing them on email. And it just went on and on endlessly. And so that's an example of what's the role you're in here and what's the rank and what, what, what's a, what's the appropriate behavior. It's, it's actually decision-making. And, um, and that was just, that, that's an underuse of power example as well, right? Where this person was just didn't really, had like a value system that like, oh, if you make decisions, you're depriving people of an opportunity to be creative. Um, I know you give some great definitions in your book and in your, in your trainings of, about what the, you're, I think you're, um, you're borrowing on uh, literature on power and its uses and abuses. Um, around that, but love to have your, your definition of formal and informal and how it, how it's playing out in the world right now or in organizations and, um, an example of formal and, you know, any kind of example that comes to mind yeah. and kind of helping us distinguish between the two. 
Yeah. Well, every organ, I mean, every place has formal and informal power. So the formal power structures are the roles and the, the known positions, the managers or the vice presidents or the teacher or even a parent in a family, right? Where, where you have like, these are the roles and it's clear who's in that role and it's kind of a permanent thing. You earn it. Um, and when you leave that role, you know, someone else can step into it. So there's these formal power structures and, um, and, um, and then the informal power is like, well, where are, who's influencing in the background? It has nothing to do with what position you're in. It has to do with other dimensions and other factors. And it's different from situation to situation. So informal power really depends, like who has informal power really depends on the values and the norms of that group. That, that you know, so like, you know, you could have a lot of informal power if you have access to information that's really valuable to people in the organization, even if you're a low level. Like sometimes the tech people have a lot of informal power because everybody, even if they have low positional status or low positional power, everybody <laughs> needs the tech people and they have a lot of informal power, right? They can have favorites and they can like let other people like struggle, you know, and they can help other people faster. That's a lot of power to have, right? Or who has access to the calendars or, or just who fits the, you know, who's, who's popular, who's an insider, who's got seniority, all these things give you greater informal power. And, um, and it can be used, you know, in an organization, I think informal power also can sometimes be like, who's got institutional knowledge, who knows, you know, who knows the ropes, who knows how to get things done, who do you go to for help? And they're, really influential people in an organization. And when done well, you know, it's the informal power. Like, for example, when you talk about inclusion or exclusion, I think informal power is like key to the experience of inclusion, because whether or not somebody's successfully onboarded, whether or not someone feels they belong, has a lot to do with like the so-called old guard insiders, veterans of an organization. Do they welcome newcomers or do they kind of just hunker down and they're like little protective groups, right? And so used well, informal power can just do a lot to make an organization really hum. Which brings me to power versus powerlessness. Power and powerlessness. Um, any thoughts on that? How they go together? You know, the paradox that I, I come back to again and again and again is that is that feeling powerful is so important to using power well. And it's this chicken egg thing, like, well, how can I feel powerful if I don't have power? But, you know, nobody, nobody has all the power, right? You know, you know, you look at, you look at, you look at the top leaders and how much they complain. And it just, be, you don't have to look far to see that, like, who's feeling, like, who feels powerful? Like, very few people really identify, everyone feels like they're being hard done by, that they're being screwed over, that the media is unfair or that they're bossing or whatever. There's, you know, some force that's, that's inhibiting them, that that's holding them back. And so this experience of powerlessness is, it's so endemic. It's, 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 it's like everywhere. And it leads to just the worst use of power because it's, it's, um, Unless you, unless it's checked and I, I, it's not, it's not inevitable, but it can lead to a really poor use of power where you're just grasping for power 
in order to overcome your feelings of powerlessness and or to protect or to defend or to boost your ego or to get back at your enemies. When I see when I see people who use their power really well, I see people who have an inner sense of self high self-regard or an inner sense of wisdom or balance or self-love. I don't know what you, you call it, whatever you want. And there's different dimensions in here. But the more somebody experiences an inner agreement with them, with who they are, an inner sense of, 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 of power, of empowerment, they feel at ease or they feel empowered or they feel high self-esteem or just high self-regard even, um, their use of power tends to be more benevolent, um, more sort of other-oriented, less about what they can get. It's less about overcoming their own turmoil and more about giving. And, you know, Adam Galinsky, one of the uh, top researchers in the field of power, he's at Columbia, and uh, his work has been really influential to me. Um, I think he said, um, power makes you more like yourself. Um, so, um, he said that, I think he said that with some others and it was in an article that he co-wrote, I believe. And, and so like a pro-social person will use power in a pro-social way. Um, so someone with antisocial tendencies or somebody who's like, you know, insecure or, or, or combative will use power to basically fortify their own position. So powerlessness, powerful, these, to me, this is like a real, and then how, and it goes very much to how I work with power. Like I absolutely work with people's sense of inner power, um, coaching leaders, working with people, helping them identify, understand their own inner power, the powers they have, the powers they use, um, looking at where they leak power, where do they get triggered? Where do they lose it? Where do they like sort of get their buttons pushed and being able to anticipate that and understand how that influences their, their use of power and their leadership is critical to how I work with and coach leaders. Thank you so much. Uh, that was, that was perfect. Um, and a perfect ending, a perfect way to end and, and still, and invite, even more inquiry and self-reflection and reflection on the systems that we're, we're a part of and perpetuating uh, based on, you know, depending on our roles and our power and our rank. Um, so thank you so much for Julie, for being, for sharing with us. Um, I feel like we could do a whole podcast on, on every topic that you brought in. So thanks for spending so much time with us and um, we look forward to some more with you, working with you in the future. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks for the conversation and for the, uh, the, the, the sort of the wide ranging uh, topics and stories. Uh, it was really enjoyable and I really, really appreciated it. So thank you both also for the work you. that you're doing. Thank you.